welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast with me, Andrea Fox. This is an environmental podcast about trying to live a less plastic-filled, less wasteful life, about how to eat, shop and do things differently and more sustainably. I named it the Age of Plastic podcast because I think that's what we're living in, the age of plastic. It's in our oceans, it's in our soil and our bodies. And for me, it's a shorthand for some of our big environmental issues, from overconsumption to overuse of fossil fuels to the harming of our air, soil and water quality. It's a gateway issue and it links into so many other aspects of our lives. So we don't just look at eco-issues of plastic waste. This podcast is full of expert guests who talk about everything from ditching fast fashion to food waste and plastic-free beauty to recycling bins. And we share a simple eco-life hack at the end of every single episode. So if you're intrigued about doing your bit for the planet, I made this podcast for you. This is also my journey too, so I hope you enjoy. Tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast. I am Andrea Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and if you've got in touch just to say hi and that you're enjoying it. If you want to do that, you can contact me via my Instagram page at Age of Plastic podcast. Or if you don't have social media, I mean, I don't blame you. You can email me via my website, iamandreafox.co.uk if with any comments, guest suggestions or eco life hacks that you'd like to share. We have one about um, celebrations, let's say, at the end of today's episode after, of course, today's guest. I'm really excited to have Sue Campbell on today's podcast. She decided to leave her job two years ago and set up a clean green beauty brand kind to our solid shampoo and conditioner bars they are plastic free they're vegan they're free from soap sulfates silicones and parabens and as they say on their website they are solid shampoo and conditioner reinvented for the 21st century saving the planet doesn't have to mean bad hair so this brand is really really new sue doesn't even have a cosmetics background either so i was really interested in what made her decide to launch kind to her career turnaround so we talk about loads of different things not only plastic waste on this episode um issues you might have had trying solid shampoo bars before spoiler warning it might be to do with ph businesses carbon footprints being a responsible customer social enterprises and the ethics of sourcing materials and eco packaging but first this is how kind Two all began so I was living in Hong Kong. Um, I left Hong Kong almost exactly two years ago. I was MD for a large professional services company looking after Asia, travelling a lot for work, working insane hours, um, and maybe to some extent I felt like I'd sold my soul a bit. Yeah, it sounds very high-powered. Is it well. quite like high-powered, <laughs> high high-stress? High Definitely high-stress um, okay. and had a lot of responsibility, but it was a great learning experience as well because mm. I had lots of different countries and so I got a much deeper appreciation of cultures across Asia, which is a wow. fantastic experience. And also got to travel to places that, frankly, I would never have been to otherwise, both for work and for pleasure. Must have been amazing to work out there. Um, so you went from that to creating this zero-waste beauty brand. What, what what was the inspiration for that? Um, so I suppose that job itself and being in Asia was the inspiration. We were there for eight years, 2010 to 2018. 
And over that time, I even noticed a huge change. As people become wealthier, I say tend to you know, buy into consumerism even more. Um, we were travelling to a lot of places that were really remote, so you'd have to walk there or get a boat there, or etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I started to notice plastic pollution not only on the beach in Hong Kong, which actually is a lot more. It's more omnipresent. It's in your face. You go to the beach every weekend because you can, because it's warm, um, and the water is full of pieces of plastic. And then, you know, when you go away from the patrolled beaches in Hong Kong, and because it's an island country and you've got lots of patrol, unpatrolled beaches, you literally find pieces of plastic and piles of it everywhere. And so I just I started to think that there was individual things we could do. Obviously, we try to recycle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like everybody does. But I didn't really feel like it was enough. And I thought I can spend the rest of my career, um, the twilight of my career years, um, in a corporate job, doing something that is genuinely very interesting, or I can take a real risk and maybe I'd never taken any really significant risks in my career and try and do something different that I actually think will make a difference. And ultimately, I want plastic-free products to become mainstream. Now, I clearly understand it's not just me that's going to do that, but if you're part of that movement, then you're supporting that change and maybe inspiring more people to change. So it was really that. It was actually seeing plastic pollution on beaches that convinced me we can't go on like this. That's amazing. And we were talking about some other brands as well. So like you say, you're part of a part of a bigger movement and obviously lots of things have to change, but... But yeah, I think that's really inspiring. I don't know if you saw it, but there was a video, um, I think Hugo from Surfers Against Sewage um, posted it this weekend. And it's the sea wave, but it's just full, full of plastic bottles. And I hadn't seen anything quite that bad. I'm not sure what part of the world it's from, because on British beaches, you see it quite a lot. But it's interesting, whenever I've gone abroad, I suppose because we're sending our plastic abroad, mm-hmm. uh, and they've not been able to cope with it, but have been taking it for quite a while, especially countries like Asia, that may, maybe that it's not necessarily their waste, it's our waste. That's oh, absolutely. And it's not really, It's not a criticism of countries in Asia being unable to manage their you know, waste. It's a combination of, I guess, poor infrastructure um, together with us sending our waste there, which maybe I knew that at the time. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time sort of analysing the source of the rubbish. It's just mm. so evident. Like you literally see it everywhere. And, I mean, and it's hard not to be revolted by it. Mm. Yeah, especially destroying like beautiful areas. So you decided, right, I'm going to take a risk, career change. Mm -hmm. What's the process with setting up the brand? Did you come up with the name first? Did you do product testing? (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't come up with the name first. Gosh, I went through so many different names trying to come up with the name. Um, I suppose I started to think about um, what were products that could were ripe for reinvention, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Um, I didn't necessarily think shampoo from the outset at all. In fact, um, I started to think of a few other personal care products and then for a variety of reasons decided that there wasn't enough emotional connection with them. And when I was, I was, I'd be trawling around supermarkets looking at things thinking, yeah, what could be done differently? And then I read an article about shampoo, about being 80% water. And it was like a moment where I went, hey... Well, that's why it's in a plastic bottle. Mm. Um, and then I started looking at all the different shampoos in the supermarket. And, you know, big Sainsbury's, there's I don't know, half an aisle. It's a lot. There's a lot of variety. So much, yeah. yeah. And also I think there's emotional connection with hair that there isn't maybe with other types of personal care products, say, for example, deodorant. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, deodorant's great when it works and when maybe not so great when it doesn't work, but you don't spend <laughs> a lot of time thinking about it. Whereas hair and people's, you know, women, women in particular, their personal appearance is often tied up in how they feel about their hair and mm. they spend time and energy. And so I was like, if I could make something that was really good, mm. then people wouldn't feel it was a compromise. And that's sort of where the journey started. Um, wow. You know, I'd then de- once I decided on a product, then it was everything else came after that. Yeah. So how how did you come up with like formulas? Because you've got a very like tight range, haven't you? Yeah. So it's the sort of like no no filler in there. You were like just th- is it three products you've got or four at the moment? Three at the moment. Fourth coming out early next year, and fifth and sixth coming out probably mid year. Wow. Okay. Um, so they're already developed. They're just not on the market yet. <laughs> so how did you develop all of the original um, ones? So. I started here. I went to the British Library and I researched hair and I researched the hair care market. There's all these amazing sources of information. You can read Mintel reports, etc. Good old Mintel reports, yes. uh, And I'm a bit of a nerd. So I read those reports um, and I looked at what um, people described as their hair needs. So I looked at the top ranking hair needs. I looked at the top ranking products and I thought, well, if you're going to get people to change, it needs to solve a problem they have. So what are their needs, etc., etc.? When I found out what the top-selling shampoo in the UK was, I was a bit surprised. What is it? Or what was it? Well, (laughs) it still is probably head and shoulders. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Claudia Winkleman's doing quite well for them, clearly, in those adverts. Um, That's surprising. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because it's actually not the number one hair need, but I wonder if there's fear of dandruff Mm. drives people and maybe the hard water in the south of England and so on as well. Yes, our beautiful hard water. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, found out what people's major hair needs were. So they revolved around dry hair, um, sensitive scalp and volume were the sort of three main things that came up in most of these studies about the needs so then I thought, well, we need to address those needs. So rather than do, you know, normal oily dry type stuff, you address the problem. Um, and so I then started to understand, you know, what were some of the plant-based actives that targeted those specific things. And then I used all of that information to write a brief for a cosmetic scientist who specialised in hair care. Wow. How fun. And was it quite, was that testing process quite long or were you quite like focused? From the time I originally briefed her to the time I had the final products was more than six to nine months, somewhere like that. Because we finalised some earlier and then some of the other ones took a bit longer. Um, Partly because my brief was so complex. There were lots of things that I didn't want in there. Okay. Obvious things like the sort of parabens, sulfates, etc. Because the product is vegan and also paraben and sulfate free. And obviously I feel like I can understand why people would want it to be vegan. I was probably not aware that some shampoos weren't. What about paraffin and sulfates are are bad for us or things we should avoid? Um... Oh, I suppose it's, there is some controversy around that, but I would say that research that I have read would suggest that um, sulfites can be harsh. Is this the stuff that makes it um, sh- like bubbly? Yeah, so what makes it bubbly is called a surfactant, so that's a cleaning agent. Some of the cleaning agents are sulfates, but not all surfactants are sulfates, if you understand what that's I mean. nice and confusing, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, yeah, this whole area is very confusing, <laughs> and I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm just someone who likes to read about things. Um, but some, well, yes, some particular sulfates are renowned to be irritants to people's skin and hair. Sometimes they strip their hair so much that it requires, um, that it needs more washing, so which is an interesting 
thing, isn't it? So yeah, is that thing? wonder if that's deliberate. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Strip it more so we have to wash our hair more because it gets greasier quicker because your hair yeah. tries to compensate. Exactly. Got yeah, you. yeah. Okay. So that, that's one um, reason why you wouldn't want it. And potentially the other one is that if you have coloured hair, um, it can really strip the colour. So you know, if you're spending money on getting your hair coloured, you don't want to have to redo it all the time. Um, and there are some environmental concerns as well. And as I said, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to sort of... But enough convinced me that if there were suitable alternatives that were plant-based and didn't necessarily have those concerns, then why wouldn't we use them? So you nailed all of the ingredients, like you said, plant-based. And because they're not in plastic and they don't contain water, they last so much longer. So have you thought about how many sales you've had versus how many plastic bottles that would have been have you thought, done any of that research yet to look at how much you might have saved um well I know how many sales I've had um, <laughs> at this point um and in fact I was going to do that calculation but I think we're well into we've already gone over the thousand mark wow. um and yeah, which actually go over that surprisingly quickly because each bar is at least two bottles, so the, oh, wow. the shampoo yeah. bar. I would have said more because they're pretty big. They're pretty, they're quite substantial, aren't they? Yeah, and you know we were deliberately trying to not overstate that because I think it's important. You know, when you sort of first launching your brand you don't want to I guess you know overdo all of the things that you think are great you want consumers to come to that realization themselves um, but I would say yeah two at least two for the shampoo possibly even up to four for a conditioner because my conditioner bar that I'm using which is an early prototype is still is having its first birthday this week actually. oh really god there you go a year in conditioner there's yeah. there's no way anything has lasted that long that's come into my house yeah. in a bottle before yeah but also I think from talking to people I found out lots of interesting things about how people use products I mean some people are extremely liberal with their product and so they would say to me oh you know I buy a new bottle of shampoo every month, I had someone tell me. Or, and I was like, how big is the bottle? Yeah, how many people in the house yeah. are using the same yeah. shampoo? I think some people just, they just use lots and lots of stuff. Because I would assume that would get loads of product stuck in your hair. Possibly. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things when someone says something like that, you don't want to be critical and say, mm. are you kidding? What are you doing with that? <laughs> I, um, I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And the woman who told me, I mean, she didn't have exceptionally long hair or exceptionally curly hair or exceptionally thick hair she just had kind of ordinary shoulder length hair so mm. I was thinking okay well maybe it's really dry or maybe she just uses a lot yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about customer feedback so that's, that's something that you've learned from customers but what sort of when you say long hair curly hair what are the, some of the kind of comments that you get from people who are using the bars um actually have had people say the conditioner doesn't lather People really struggle with conditioner bars, don't they? I'm glad you said that because that is the thing people have said to me, including someone who I work with who's uh, trying to use shampoo and conditioner bars on his daughter's curly hair, but he Mm -hmm. just cannot... It doesn't compute because it doesn't lather for some people. Yeah, and when... Well, the reason I mentioned that is that the first time someone said it to me, I was a bit like, what do you mean it doesn't lather? Conditioner conditioner doesn't really, yeah. And so I was thinking, why do people think that? So I then started to look at formulations of some of the conditioners that are on the market. And some of the conditioners on the market actually contain SLS, which was a complete revelation to me. And this is the stuff that lathers. Yes. So that's, Mm. and I wonder if that's for, and look, I don't know what proportion of it contains, but I wonder if that's just for sort of visual effect or the way that it makes people feel. I'd never, it hadn't even crossed my mind because I've never used a conditioner that leathered. I actually haven't either. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and so I, when people say that to me, I often say, well, you know, actually vows is not meant to because it actually is a concentration of conditioning agents and oils. Mm. You know, you don't need to lather it to make it effective. You can just apply it directly to your hair. So that was actually a big thing that I learned. Um, what else have I learned? People love foam. <laughs> yeah it's funny isn't it do you think it is you you mentioned like the um maybe the psychological effect of once you see the bubbles you think it's cleaner or yeah, yeah. people do like foam and so some people have said oh it doesn't foam very much and I said no it doesn't foam yeah. very much um it has led me to think though that I probably will bring out one that foams a lot more if that's what if people like foam, mm. that gives them foam. And there's a way of doing that. Um, just you change the mix of ingredients a bit. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think people, they're socially conditioned perhaps by all the advertising to think that when it foams, it's cleaning your hair. And, I mean, there are plenty of sulfate-free shampoos in the market that are liquid that mm. don't foam very much either. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just think that's interesting. I think people want to put fairy on their head or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look like, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, all of the adverts, Pantene adverts or whatever. And people just find it hard, I think, to get into their hair sometimes, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm absolutely loving them. I should say you have sent me some to try. And I was like, I'm going to use these for a few weeks before I say anything about it. But I've really enjoyed them. I've got really, I've really dry hair. I bleach it. Unfortunately, because I like having my hair blonde, I don't really understand unless maybe if you had curly hair, some people have said they struggle. Well, yeah, yeah, you've got curly hair I've as well. Got, I've got curly hair. It's really fine and there's stacks of it. <laughs> yeah. So so jealous. I want all of those things. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, and it tends to be really frizzy in London with the high humidity. Mm. Um, and I've noticed that my hair is less frizzy because I used to put loads of like anti-frizzing type stuff on that. And I don't have any product in my hair. I haven't put any product in my oh. hair for a year now amazing if it works for you then you're saving on the, the extra products that maybe your your shampoo and conditioner are causing the issue in the first place yeah and I, I mean maybe they were and I guess it's a combination of that and the weather although living in Hong Kong of course the um, yes. humidity is it's extremely like high there too <laughs> and what about the hard water here when I was doing my research, not only did I go to the British Library and read all those things, I joined quite a number of the large Facebook groups that are zero waste focused and started to search all of the comment threads to understand what people thought about shampoo bars and what their experience has been, what ones they recommended, didn't recommend, good, bad, etc., etc. And there were a lot of themes that came through um, and I started to try and understand what was the connection between the themes and the themes being problems people had so mm. they would talk about a transition period they would talk about using vinegar rinses so you know who wants to smell like a chip yeah mm. exactly even the <laughs> apple cider one doesn't smell nice I like apple cider vinegar but not on my hair yeah same <laughs> um and so yeah people were talking about oh my hair's matted it's greasy it's waxy I'd have a transition period etc and then what I realized was that was because people were using soap-based bars and soap-based bars have really high pH because soap is typically kind of 8.5 to 10 pH mm-hmm. and hard water has a high pH as well. Okay. And so if you live in a soft water area, you may be able to get away with using a soap-based shampoo bar for your hair. Still potentially, I would say, too drying okay. because it's you know, the high pH is a lot higher than your hair is and your scalp is. Um, hair and scalp are, are lower in the sort of you know, low acidic, lower acidic range. Um but it wouldn't be quite so bad as the combination of a soap-based bar and hard water 
is the thing that tends to give most people so much grief that they think they tried all these shampoo bars, they didn't work, and they've gone back to liquid shampoo. And that was something I just kept reading over and over again. And I was like, oh, this is heartbreaking. Yeah. People are motivated. They really want to buy something. They spent their hard-earned cash on something. Yeah. And it's not been explained to them when they might be going wrong. And it's confusing because they're called shampoo bars as well. So, Mm. I mean, no wonder it's confusing. And then you try and explain to people pH and people's eyes glaze over. They're just not interested. (laughs) unsurprisingly yeah which is so weird because I don't know I love a toiletry product and I love finding out more about it but some of my friends are like don't even take their makeup off at night and I'm like how what are you doing yeah and so the yeah the idea of them researching pH before they got a shampoo bar Uh, so have you found that something is that something you're thinking about when it comes to conveying that to your customers yeah I mean it's one of the things that we've got written on the front of our box you know it says plastic free soap free and pH balanced but I'm still not entirely sure that all customers really understand what that means and we've put a bit of stuff on our Instagram but I think we probably need to do more work Mm. on explaining the significance of it because it doesn't really matter to a customer that it's pH balanced what matters is how it performs on their hair yeah so creating the link between those two things mm. so um, for next year we've got more stuff planned on I guess informative things on the blog around that I mean you can't put too much more on the packaging. I mean, you know, it's a small box. Yeah, yeah. and the packaging—it's already looks, an eyesight test. Yeah, so. it's it looks great as well. Like you say, you want to you want to think about that branding and yeah. keep the info. If there's too much information on there, people just too much. Yeah. People won't take it in. Yeah, and you know, you can't bombard them with and this and this and this. It's mm. not a very effective message. So. Yeah. Well, you mentioned next year. Um, so what are the big things for 2020 for Kind2? Uh, well, we've been talking around already um, earlier today. So we're going to start working with a social enterprise to do our logistics. Yes, um, you've been taking when logistics. You've been sending things out yourself, haven't physically. you? <laughs> physically <laughs> going to the post office, which is quite exhausting. <laughs> yeah, and not a, I mean, something you might do. I mean, our business has only been going three months, literally this week so something you might do right at the beginning but you really can't keep doing forever if you want to grow the business yeah Um, and so we'd started to look at commercial um, outsourcing and we outsource our manufacturing but we certainly didn't want to outsource our um, logistics until we thought it would make sense and so having now found a social enterprise that does that I'm super excited about working with them because it supports some of my values as an individual then actually it helps other people get into work, get training, etc. So really excited about that. Um, we've got some other things planned around packaging, looking at um, potentially using some other materials. So looking at grass paper, for example. Oh, really? Um, and I'm also in conversations already with somebody to look at our carbon footprint and to be able to do some measurement around the carbon difference between liquid shampoo and conditioner and our solid products and also to look at what we can do to minimize our carbon footprint as a business so they're quite long-term things but actually Mm. I'm trying to think really big Mm. about how do we make a difference beyond just simply the product like what is the impact of what we do and measuring it. In, in lots of other ways. I think that's really interesting. Have you, do you think that will end up being a carbon offsetting for you guys? Yes, possibly, mm. yeah. I mean, I think we're relatively low carbon to begin with mm. because of the product, um, but I don't want to take anything for granted. I want to really actually look, look right through the sort of whole ingredient supply chain, understand what our carbon footprint is, what else we can do around everything. And I like the idea of grass paper because if you know that trees are one of the things that offsets climate change yet you're using 
cardboard, albeit recycled cardboard, and so on, so everything's non-plastic, is there a way that you can take it almost a step further? Yeah. And I read some really interesting stuff about grass paper and how it's different from a carbon perspective and so on. I was going to ask, I haven't heard anything about that. So is it is it much better then? I suppose um, you're not cutting down trees for water. Not cutting down trees, um, growing cycles, significantly shorter mm. grass, etc. Anyone um, who's ever mowed a lawn knows that to be true. <laughs> exactly. Um, I love all the things like B Corp and so on. So mm. actually we've done the preliminary you know, certification steps. We're a long way from being ready because we're too small, but it's yeah, on my three radar. Three months. The it's fact a, that you're thinking about that already is yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's on my radar because I think it's really important. I really like it as a philosophy. And then trying to decide during the course of next year, and this is be linked to B Corp, um, we will support a charitable organisation. We need to find the right one um, that supports our values as a business. But also, I guess we need to be at a point where we're you know, commercially sustainable. I would say we're, we're a new brand getting our, our feet on the ground. And next year's all about growth. Growth and growing up. Growth and growing up. I yeah. like that. That's your 2020 tagline. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And we can, you've already touched on some of the new products, so possibly one that foams a little bit more. Are you able to yeah. say any more about the other products for next um, year? Oh, I'm keeping one of them very secret. Okay, good. It's quite exciting. Um, <laughs> people keep asking me about purple shampoo. I've had four people in the space of three weeks. So I think that could blondes. be... Blondes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, I guess there's a lot of blonde people. And in I suppose country. anyone anyone who's, you know, with, a, you know, the older generation with white hair. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's a possibility. I like the idea of using some upcycled ingredients as well. So mm. we'll look at that as a way of potentially how do we do the purple that might be involved, something like that. I don't know yet. Um, and the other ones that we've got planned probably want to keep them to myself for okay. now I like a big splash about them <laughs> at the time but at least three more products in the first half of the year and then some other ones that I've got in my head including the purple shampoo okay um that and extra foaming one amazing yes. and you just touched on ingredients there so when it comes to ingredients has that been quite a difficult one to get right in terms of where you source the ingredients yes in a word, um, <laughs> not only the ingredients, but also actually your manufacturing partners trying to understand the the transparency of supply chain in you know, cosmetic manufacturing is actually really challenging because a lot of the manufacturers would say to you, you know, we source our, our products or our ingredients from XYZ. They can't always tell us exactly where it came from to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um what was probably challenging actually was really around things like, so we decided that we didn't want to use any synthetic colour and no synthetic fragrance. Mm-hmm. And people, I think, are quite accustomed to personal care products, shampoos, moisturisers, etc., um, having a really strong fragrance. Yes, because uh, of that particular high street brand. Yeah. Well, but anything, and it's really interesting when we um, sell at uh, at markets, as we did over um, Christmas, we did two big Christmas markets, people pick up the products and they sniff them. mm Immediately. <laughs> yeah. I saw the green one, which I hadn't used. I immediately picked up and smelt it. And you were like, yeah, it doesn't really have a fragrance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually the fragrance is really subtle because yeah. we only use essential oil and we have it in a low concentration because obviously you're applying it directly on your head. But coming up with the right fragrance combination that was going to be stable is really tricky. Um, 
but also the colour. We only use natural colourants, so they're clay-based colours, um, which, of course, in part look a very subtle colour. Very muted. Yeah, yeah. compared Barrow to... Barrow and ball colours. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> compared to you know, the iridescent bright colours. And that's actually fairly challenging to get it right because when we were experimenting you know, through the development phase, that was the reason that um, some of the products had sort of four or five rounds of trying to get it right, was getting the exact combination colour and fragrance because it was too strong overwhelming because it's a concentrated hard product too subtle like that doesn't smell at all mm-hmm. and likewise with the the colorants um natural color is a little bit unpredictable and so you don't necessarily know how they can react with all of the other ingredients and so some of them you know the first time i looked at them they were they looked muddy I was going to say, did it look a bit like a mushroom, like a brown sort of... It's not necessarily appealing, is it? Not very attractive, no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all our products have to be different colours and the conditioner and the shampoo have to be different so that you can tell the difference in the shower. Of course. Yeah. Different shapes when you get them, but not after a little while, obviously. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. and so if you can't tell the difference and you're not wearing your glasses in the your shower, um, that's not practical either. So all of those things, you just don't think about that when you start out. It's only when you get further down the track and you get two samples from your formulator and you look at them and think, if this was the first time that I had ever seen them, would I even be able to tell the difference? So interesting. Yeah. So much involved in it. A lot more than I realised. But you've, you've still enjoyed it, I'm guessing? Oh, oh, my goodness. It's the most exciting thing I've ever done. Like, I'm so enthusiastic <laughs> about it. And I think that yeah. just kind of, yeah, you can, you can tell that about the brand. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, this is a great experience for me personally. Um, it's led me into a whole world of meeting new and exciting people. Um, and I actually feel extremely positive about how much momentum is behind, I guess, plastic-free products and independent brands in the UK at the moment. Um, and maybe I was a little bit oblivious to that before because I was doing different things. And yes, we came back to the UK specifically because I thought it was a better place to launch a business than necessarily going back to Australia. Um, but it just feels to me that there is the time has come where this is starting to build into a mainstream concern, and that to me is really exciting. I completely agree. There's definitely momentum behind yeah. it completely. What is the one thing you would change if you could, if you could click your fingers? Would it, whether it's government, consumer behaviour, what would it be? Oh, goodness me. I think it probably would be the dominance of large brands and their supply chains in relation to consumer products. That sounds, this cuts across not just personal care, it cuts mm-hmm. across all sorts of FMCG. How? FMCG, sorry. Uh, fast-moving consumer goods. So the, Got you, thank yeah, you. Sorry, so the, you've read too much Mintel. That's <laughs> <laughs> a very Mintel word. Um, yeah, so they dominate so many industries. I mean, you're talking about chocolate bars, biscuits, breakfast cereal, shampoo, deodorant, whatever. And because they're large and they're really dominant, they end up with a lot of efficiency because they have large-scale manufacturing, which drives down the price. Economies of scale. Yeah, consumers expect and I understand why they want to buy a chocolate bar for, I don't know, 70p, how much? I don't know how much they cost actually, but um, certainly would expect to buy a bottle of shampoo, a Tesco home brand one for a pound. And it's really hard for any independent brand to compete 
because they don't have the scale and they don't have access to the manufacturing facilities. Because when you first start out trying to find a manufacturer, many of them will say, yeah, our minimum order quantity is, for example, 100,000 units. And you think, well, you know, maybe one day. Yeah, yeah. But not... Not today. Not your first order. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I know someone who tried to set up a a nail polish brand um, that was vegan or all natural. I don't even know how you do that because to me, nail polish is a little pot of chemical. Um, But they didn't get around to selling them in time because they were moving house and they had to throw all the stock away because they... Oh, yeah. that's heartbreaking. So, and why would you want to take that risk with 100,000 units? Yeah. But yeah. That's, so, that's so interesting. Uh, I suppose I don't think about it because uh, I'm always thinking like consumer f- focused more. I mean, and it is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti-capitalist or anything. It is the way capitalist societies work. I understand that. Um, but I guess you say you want to change anything. Well, I'd love to change that. Do would I- you see more smaller producers so there wasn't such a kind of blanket? Yeah. And I think power from the beginning. And I think the you know, the beauty industry is definitely being you know, there's more indie beauty, but booming industry it is. But the challenges that all indie beauty brands face are exactly those challenges: price point, you know, access, etc. Um, it's that's really tough, and so I think a lot of people um, would either spend a lot of money and not necessarily get their product to market in any viable way, or um, just you know, almost give up because it's so hard. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's tough. It's it's a crowded market out there. Yeah. Um, so our last final questions, we always <laughs> ask our guests, um, your favourite non-single-use plastic item because plastic may be not the best thing to be using for shampoo bottles, but it has been quite revolutionary. I always give the example of laptops, my vinyl collection. So is there any item in your life that is plastic you couldn't do without? Well, it's probably a single use, though, unfortunately, and that's my contact lenses. Oh, yeah, that's tough. I mean, I always do think, like, that's kind of a medical thing. I can't put contact lenses in my eyes, so I should be wearing my glasses. (laughs) But you're kind of not going to give up that ease of being able to see properly and go about your life. Well, it would would be dangerous, clearly. Um, (laughs) Get in the car with you. Um, I mean, I do recycle them. I take them to oh, can you recycle to, them? Oh, yes, you can. Um, TerraCycle oh. do recycling of contact lenses. TerraCycle. I mean, honestly, and, yeah. I think in the future they might just take everything yeah. and recycle. Yeah, and look, do I know exactly what happens to them? But I feel good because I take, I collect them all up, the contact lenses in their little individual cases, and I take them up to Boots and I pop them in the, the recycling every you know, couple of weeks or whatever. So no, I couldn't do without my contact lenses. Mm. That's a really good tip as well. I didn't yeah. realise that TerraCycle also, even if it's downgrading, it's better than cancel well, waste, I think. Yeah, it's better than throwing them in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything is. Um, and finally, your environmental hero, Sue. Oh, it's a really, I've been thinking about this for a week or two um, in anticipation of your question. Um, I'm not so much one of those people that has real hero worship. So I was thinking about what is it that really inspired me to do this? And I'd actually have to say my parents. Oh, that's so yeah. lovely. <laughs> um, my parents are um, living in Australia and they a lot of their values revolve around things like, I guess, not, not being excessively consumerist and being very responsible consumers and understanding the, their impact on the planet. They're not hippies. They're just responsible people. Uh, my father was a geography and economics teacher, so he really gave me an appreciation of the natural world. Um, and then my parents did things that nobody did in uh, the early 80s. They put solar panels on the roof of their house. Wow. And they would say to people, oh, you know where we live, because if you drive along the street, we're the ones with the solar panels. Now, 
obviously more people do that. But yeah. this would have been, this was before I left home. So this is like early 80s. I don't um, think I even knew about solar panels until the 90s. So, yeah. No, but I guess it's Australia. Sun shines all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think actually they have really influenced me. As you get older, you often appreciate these things that maybe you didn't when you were a teenager. Mm, yeah. You just think they're normal then. I know yeah. Elvis and Cressy, um, their brand, they make um, luxury goods out of old fire hose. Yes. It's been decommissioned. Uh, she also said her parents and grandparents as ah. well for a similar thing. Okay. I love their grew. products. Their products are so nice. <laughs> on my Christmas list. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you get them. And thank you so much for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure. Editing this episode has just reminded me that I need to order a new shampoo bar. Big thank you to Sue Campbell there from Kind2. And since launching, Kind2 have already saved 2,000 plastic bottles, which I think for three months is not really that bad, right? Uh, head to Kind2, that's the number two, dot M-E, to order yours or follow them on Instagram if you want to learn more at We Are Kind2, that's the number two. On to today's eco life hack. So it was my birthday recently. Champagne cork popping sound effect, please. Now, lots of places have replaced their real cork with plastic. Let's not delve into that. But the real cork obviously comes from trees and it seems a waste to throw those away. If you weren't aware, recorked will take your cork and turn it into something brand new, therefore stopping it from going to landfill. Um, they're the UK's leading wine cork recycling programme. You can donate, they resell it basically. For every cork they collect as well, they will donate a percentage of their profits to the nominated charities. You can also, if you don't know of a recycling point near you, I know that First Mile, who we've had on the podcast before, do collect them. And also you might see them in some, you know, wine shops. You can also post them, though. You can find their address on their website, which is recorkuk.org and find out more about what they do with the cork. That's it for today's episode of the Age of Plastic podcast. Big thank you to you for listening and to today's guest, Sue Campbell. Coming up on next week, yes, next week's edition of the Age of Plastic podcast, I'm going to be chatting to someone who did another career 180. Ella Dersh decided to quit her job as a postal worker and campaign to end plastic periods. I talked to her all about activism on the next episode of the Age of Plastic podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until then, I'm going to pop a few corks on the last of the birthday drinks and stay in and wash my hair. 